G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and I'm coming to you today in this election season in a little bit of a different way. I'm with my good friend, Senator Eric Abetz. Uh, Senator Abetz is somebody uh, who I wanted to highlight at this time because uh, he and I share so many values. We share a, a Christian faith. Um, I think we might even be uh, reasonably close to nominationally. Um, but also we share a lot of uh, our political convictions. And so uh, it's really a pleasure for me to be talking to you today. Eric, thank you for agreeing to do this. A pleasure and a good to be with you. I think in roughly chronological order, your life goes something like uh, born the youngest of six siblings, uh, and I identify with that, I'm the youngest of five, then a farmhand, a taxi driver, a law student, a lawyer, a partner in a law firm in Hobart, then you were a senator in 1994 and you've been there ever since in the Australian Senate. Uh, you were the parliamentary secretary to the Minister for Defence, I think that was in the Howard government, then Special Minister of State, Minister for Fisheries, Forestry and Conservation, Manager of Government Business in the Senate, Shadow Minister for Innovation, Industry, Science and Research, Deputy Leader of the Opposition in the Senate, Shadow Minister for Employment and Workplace, Workplace Relations, Leader of the Opposition in the Senate, Minister for Employment, Minister Assisting the Prime Minister for the Public Service, Leader of the Government in the Senate, and I think the first Tasmanian to take on that job. Uh, and now you are chair of the Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Legislation Committee. Uh, I think by any measure, people would look at that resume and say, this is a successful and an experienced man. Uh, what's your reflection? It's a uh, reflection of thankfulness that I've been able to do the wonderful things that I've been able to do. Uh, it's been a privilege to do all the things I've done, be it in the legal firm, uh, being able to study, or then in more later years as a senator seeking to serve the people of Tasmania. It's a uh, wonderful opportunity, and as a migrant child to this country, uh, it's a great reflection as well on Australian society, which allows somebody that came here on an assisted passage, went through the state school system, no silver spoons anywhere, but... Uh, I was allowed to, uh, with support of many people, to uh, become leader of the government in the Senate uh, and now chair of the Senate Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Committee. It's a, uh, been yeah, wonderful opportunities and I hope I've done some good along the way. Well, in your maiden speech, I think you said something about this, um, and that's back in 1994. It was a great read, actually, and I've got a bit of an excerpt here right in front of me. Uh, you made this comment, uh, Eric. You said, my parents sought to instill in me a value system of service above self and dedication to tasks at hand and provided me with a stable, loving, nurturing family home and a deep Christian faith. It is that faith that makes me confident that my parents are watching today's proceedings from a gallery a lot loftier than this place in all its splendor could ever provide. Whilst not from a background of privilege, I am from the most privileged of backgrounds, wealthy in values and wealthy in family, nurture and love, uh, which again, I just identify with. But I wanted to drill into something there. Um, I was struck by this because I've talked to you before and, and, and I've heard similar things where you said that it was a value system of service above self. Um, and it reminded me of something Robert Menzies said to the Forgotten People. Um, and I think this is a slight summary, but he said that the good citizen asks not how he can qualify society to advantage himself, but how he can qualify himself to advantage society. There's this duty-centric view of life. It's not a self-centered view or a right-centered view. 
And I just, I don't know, it hits me because it's countercultural, I think, for people, um, certainly in my generation, um, they don't think that way instinctively. You know, the prevailing view that the good life is a life of self-realization, satisfying oneself, one's goals, uh, you know, fulfilling one's happiness. And so I actually wanted to get your advice on that in light of your career, the work that you've done uh, and the work you continue to do. Uh, what is your word to those of us at the other end of the journey uh, on the subject of self and service? Those that are self-centric, I have found, are often the most dissatisfied with life. They're, they seem to be the people that uh, are always pursuing something to try to get some inner satisfaction or inner fulfilment. Whereas those that seek to dedicate their lives to the service of others get their fulfilment and satisfaction from that service. And... Uh, yeah, the selfish life is something that uh, I dare say uh, appeals to all of us to a certain extent, but it's not satisfying. It might be a sugar hit, but it will never last. It doesn't provide you with that solid foundation that you really need for a well-lived and satisfied, satisfying life. And so, yeah, people like be it like Mother Teresa, um, serving the underprivileged, the poor, the dying. That is what can provide real satisfaction in life, a life well lived. And at the end of the day, it's not how many sports cars or overseas trips you've taken or whatever. It is what you've actually been able to do in the service and help of others. And that's what I've sought to do. And I've been privileged to have been able to do that for the past few years uh, through the Senate. It seems to me politics is actually one of those careers where you get both extremes. <laughs> you, get, you get people going into politics for the power, the prestige, the profile, the, you know, the things it offers, uh, I guess, the self. <laughs> but you can also go into politics for the other reason, which you've just articulated, which is that you can go there because you genuinely want to serve. Um, and I, I take it, uh, if that's been uh, such a strong value in your life, and you've been in politics for, what, over 28 years... Um, has that satisfied that urge of service? The time in the Senate has been one of uh, yeah, fulfilment in as much as I've been able to look back and hopefully look forward to being able to help a whole range of people in a whole with a whole range of issues. And so from from my perspective, um, yeah, it's a uh, very been exceptionally satisfying and I hope it will continue after the next election but uh, the people of Tasmania cool. will determine that. Uh, Eric, you said early in your career that there was no inconsistency between being a Christian and being a member of the Liberal Party. Do you feel as strongly about that now as you did then? Yes, I do and the reason that I do is that uh, the Liberal Party was founded on some 17 principles enunciated by Robert Menzies in a document we believe and that is the document to which I subscribe and uh, <laughs> the interesting thing is that a lot of people in Parliament these days wouldn't even know what we believe was as a document let alone the 17 principles enunciated in it but if you know anything about Robert Menzies history he was a committed Christian. His speeches and uh, um, public utterances were peppered with biblical analogies. 
he was a man of faith and he formed the Liberal Party on those basic fundamental values of service above self, the duty, uh, but also understanding that there are such things as reward for effort and encouraging those that want to help themselves. And so there's a, uh, a wonderful blend of values in the We Believe document to which I subscribe. That said, a lot of people can ask the question whether today's Liberal Party is still true to those values enunciated by Robert Menzies and from time to time we have strayed and when we do it has been not only to the Liberal Party's detriment but more importantly to the nation's detriment because we have not been faithful to a set of values and principles that I think are a wonderful blueprint for good government and good governance of our nation. So uh, yep, I don't see any inconsistency at all Martin, but what we need to do is stick to those principles. But how some people apply or ignore those principles is a matter of discussion. There's actually, you reminded me, Eric, there's a recently released book which listeners might want to look at, which is uh, God and Menzies. Um, and it's brilliant at bringing out exactly what you described about Robert Menzies' character and the way that he spoke. Uh, and really the biblical um, basis of so much of what he believed and what he said, it's, it's great. Uh, but I want to pick up on something you just said there. Um, one of the, the whole points we're making this election as ACL is we're trying to encourage people to vote for people, not parties. Uh, we're trying to say, look, find the wheat from the chaff uh, and make sure that you, you understand who you're voting for as an, at an individual level. Um, and I think that's such an important message because, Eric, you just made, a, I think, a, a reference to the fact that sometimes there are people in parties that can stray uh, and people, I think, are a little bit um, disillusioned as I speak around the place about some of the straying that they've observed within the Liberal Party. Um, I know in South Australia they just uh, copped quite a, a, a big whack at the, at the recent election, and a lot of that was put down to the fact that they had strayed and they pursued so many things that were not in the Menzian tradition or not Liberal values, but looked a lot more even more perhaps left than Labor on a number of uh, points. Uh, federally, there's a sense of that that people have. Um, uh, you know, there's tensions in all the parties around the place, even in Tasmania at the moment with the new Premier. Um, and I just wanted to zero in on that. What's your word to people who are thinking to themselves, I'm done with this lot, I'm never going to vote Liberal again, and I'm not telling people to vote Liberal, but what I am saying is maybe you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater when you have that attitude non-discriminately. Words of wisdom there, I think. Uh, what we need for every elector to consider is uh, what does politics provide? Not, no single candidate is a perfect candidate. No single party is a perfect party. And so what you've got to do is make a judgment value as to, if you like, the lesser of the evils on offer, uh, to put it in the negative or to put it in the positive, who is the best out of the lot that is up for election. And sometimes you won't get the perfect candidate and therefore you've got to make those uh, judgment values. You've also got to ask the question, if one lot loses government, what will the alternative be like? And uh, I still recall when the Howard government was in its death throes and 
people were saying, Eric, we need change, we need change. And I would ask, fine, what to or what from? And people couldn't quite articulate what they wanted, but they wanted change. And I think it didn't take them long to realise that the change, whatever it may have been that they craved for, was not a change for the better for themselves or for their country. So uh, whilst they wanted to whack the Howard government for whatever reason, I think uh, the Australian people didn't take too long to realise that uh, getting rid of the Howard government wasn't the best thing and not in the national interest. So come election time, by all means, vote for men and women who have values and principles that accord with your values and principles, but then also determine the various political parties as to what values and principles they hold dear and whether they are reflective of the sort of values and principles that you want guiding our nation. And so uh, that, uh, I think, brings into stark relief uh, or juxtaposition the uh, dilemma that people have when they go to the ballot box. They have to determine which side they go for and which person they go for. So uh, difficult decisions to be made, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is what I would say. Um, and at the end of the day, you do have a choice to vote for individuals and make the best decision out of, and I say that about myself as well, out of not a perfect lot. Eric, I want to drill into some issues now um, and uh, get your views on a number of the presenting things that ACL certainly supports and fights for, but that are presenting in our culture. The first one is that I noticed throughout your career, I've looked at a lot of speeches, your voting record, obviously I know you, um, you've been a real champion of freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, various other associational freedoms, the whole lot. Um, and here's a great quote from a speech in 2017. You said, the Australian people are rightly sick and tired of political correctness, which has been stifling our freedoms, including our freedom of speech. The destructive and divisive victimhood industry needs to be reined in. Um, and I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, what do you make then of the modern idea that's out there that freedom is harm, you know, because free speech means that people are going to be speaking unpredictably, then it could harm people. Therefore, it can't be trusted. Therefore, we need to control it. And you see this everywhere from online censorship through to so-called hate speech rules through, and so it goes on. What is, what is your take on that? You know, is it freedom versus harm? Uh, no, it's not freedom versus harm. In fact, uh, freedom protects us from harm, and it's freedom of speech, freedom of ideas that finally uh, allow people to realise that the world is not flat, but is a globe, that it's round, uh, that, uh, yeah, we have learned a lot of things, but people died in pursuit of the belief and wanting to um, educate the public and advocate that the world was in fact not flat and was round, or that it went around the sun, or whatever the uh, uh, various scientific uh, endeavours and research showed, if that would have been completely and utterly stifled because it upset certain sensitivities at the time, we would still be in the dark ages. And so what we need is the capacity to engage in discussion robustly, 
albeit respectfully, we should always be respectful, but there's no harm done in disagreeing, in saying, that's your point of view, that's my point of view, let's really test these ideas, clash them up against each other respectfully, but clash the ideas, the evidence, etc., and then allow us to move forward in whatever way the facts fall, whatever way the cards fall. Now, there's this sort of view that if you disagree with me, Martin, I'm offended, and therefore you shouldn't disagree with me. Well, that is no way for me to conduct myself, or indeed a society. What you need is the individual strength to be able to accept that if somebody disagrees with you, that's their right, and you are, if you want to feel offended, you know what, that's your choice. And so the idea that freedom needs to be stifled to protect certain people, uh, and look, yes, yeah, there's no complete freedom for me to drive on the wrong side of the road, because otherwise people might get killed. Um, so you have to balance these things up, but when it comes to freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of religion, those basic freedoms, they have to be sacrosanct, they have to be protected, and you've got to look after people as well with whom you might actually disagree and say, whilst I disagree with them, I actually want to protect their right to be able to advocate that point of view. And so that, I think, is the great Australian ethos as well, where Menzies, when he was uh, uh, in his heyday, wanting to ban the Communist Party of Australia and the Australian people didn't vote for it. Did that mean that they were pro-communist? No, they were pro-freedom. And they said, whilst we might have an anti-communist stance, we will not vote to, uh, disallow a, uh, to disallow the Communist Party. They should be allowed to advocate for themselves. And, of course, the people of Australia rightly rejected them at the ballot box as a political party, but accepted that they should have the right to exist. Yeah, it seems to me that maybe that's one of the lines, isn't it? Um, there's no point trying to secure a world without disagreement. <laughs> it just is it some utopian dream that's never going to work. Uh, I wonder how that Communist Party vote would go today. Uh, really interesting anecdote, actually. Um, Eric, you, um, you make these points about freedoms in general, uh, particularly freedom of speech. Um, one of the things that's been going on lately is the religious discrimination bill uh, and the sort of disappointment over the fact that that fell at the last hurdle. Uh, it seems to me the detractors really focused on this argument. They were sort of raising the bogeyman of, uh, well, you know, if Christian schools are allowed to be Christian, uh, then, you know, they're going to harm students. They're going to harm staff. You know, we need to take those rights away from them. Uh, it was the same with protecting statements of belief, which I think you've just addressed. Um, where they said, oh, well, if people are free to make religious statements, what a bunch of bigots. Look at all the people they're going to hurt. <laughs> you know, particularly on the Christian schools point, what's your take on, on that whole controversy? First of all, very disappointed that we were not able to get freedom of religion legislation through the parliament. It is one of our fundamental freedoms as human beings, uh, you and I might say it's a God-given right. The UN charters say that it is a human right. However you describe it, most people accept and acknowledge 
that it is one of the fundamental rights. And uh, for the Australian Parliament not to have been able to vote for such a piece of legislation is exceptionally disappointing. Uh, look, the discussion basically boiled down to whether or not a particular um, group of people might be might feel offended or not as comfortable as they otherwise might in a particular uh, school and schooling system. And my view is that mums and dads have the right to send their children to a school of their choice. And it seems to me that uh, if mum and dad uh, have a particular view, then they're entitled to have their children schooled in that particular value system and ethos. And uh, that is why we allow Jewish day schools, Muslim schools and Christian schools. And one thing that has disappointed me deeply is that the attack has been on Christian schools in relation to issues, sexuality. Why no commentary has been made as to why an orthodox Jewish school or a Muslim school might hold to those same values even stronger has been airbrushed out of the public discussion. It's been a wholesale assault on the Christian faith, not, uh, not a discussion that most of the faiths have similar views and values when it comes to uh, matters sexuality. And uh, you know, the thing that astounded me about all this discussion is if you don't believe in Christianity, if you don't believe in heaven and hell, if you don't believe all these things, what does it matter if somebody teaches something that says uh, you, know, you might go to hell if, well, if it doesn't exist, what's the problem? But some people say, oh, I'm still offended. It was like with Israel Falau, a situation where I came out in support of Israel Falau's right to do and say what he did and look, uh, people have differing views as to how wise, good, bad or indifferent uh, what he said. As far as I was concerned, he was entitled to say what he did and people take it or leave it. That is as it ought be in our society. And to derail completely religious freedom legislation solely on the basis that there was this alleged group that might take offence at something, I just... Uh, found very, very disappointing and uh, hopefully the next parliament will be able to deliver genuine religious freedom, which allows people to have views on matters, sexuality and a whole range of other issues as well. Are you optimistic about that, Eric, that uh, let's say that the uh, coalition government was re-elected uh, and had a, a, you know, a working majority or, or could, could get crossbenchers on side that the religious discrimination bill or a piece of legislation like it uh, could get a second airing? I would like to think so, but it would depend, one, on the coalition being re-elected and, two, the size of its majority. And the difficulty that we had was that with such a slim majority this time, it only required a handful of people to say that they weren't willing to vote for the legislation that saw it being derailed, which was yeah. a matter of great disappointment. Yeah. 
Uh, moving on the freedoms issue, this is something that struck me. I've been following your uh, social media lately and, um, you know, just keeping across the things you've been saying. Uh, and you've actually been one of the few people, I think, uh, within the government who sort of decided to say something on the record about the whole issue of mandates which I know is a big concern uh, for many people. Um, and I've got a quote here again. Just so You said, for the record, I'm vaccinated and encourage people to follow suit. But also for the record, I will not shun those who hold an alternate view. Robust discussion and willing interactions are an integral part of a free democratic society, as is the need for respect and understanding of the other point of view. They're hallmarks of a civilised and more orderly liberal democratic society. Protecting freedoms, including of those with whom we might disagree, is vital. Our failure to do so will have corrosive long-term consequences. Um, what are the consequences you're concerned about, um, particularly in this, this, uh, this policy area? Well, it's this uh, shutdown mentality that uh, I have happen to have the dominant view, and we are seeing this with doctors now, in particular in the medical profession, that there seems to be a dominant view in relation to vaccination and be it ivermectin, uh, hydroxychloroquine and other methodologies. And what I've said is all this stuff is way above my head. But qualified people, professors and doctors should be allowed to enunciate their views and their assessments without being struck off from the medical register or having their Facebook pages uh, closed down, or indeed being denied to go to the football or wherever. In, indeed, I'm, I was horrified during the lockdowns and all the rest. I couldn't go back to Tasmania without being vaccinated, uh, sorry, without uh, going into isolation for a fortnight. So I stayed on the mainland until the borders opened. And I went to a coffee shop with a friend in New South Wales who demanded not only my vaccination certificate, which I was able to supply, they then wanted proof as to who I was. And of course, I wasn't driving. I didn't have my driver's license. <laughs> and so we finally came to an agreement that my friend and I were allowed to sit outside. Oh. My friend was willing to vouch for the fact that this is Eric Abetz. You know, he happens to be a senator and if you don't know that, that's fine. But, you know, this isn't made up sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, uh, completely over the top wow. response. And in a free and caring society, you know, being vaccinated, I was of the view, and I would have thought everybody ought to be of the view, those that want to be vaccinated have the protection of that vaccination, whatever it might be. So why should I, as a vaccinated person, live in fear of the unvaccinated? It just made no sense to me at all. But uh, having these freedoms is fundamentally important. And I don't want a two-tier system, Martin, where, let's say, I'm allowed to go to church, I'm allowed to go to the football, I'm allowed to go to a restaurant because I'm vaccinated and somebody that isn't vaccinated isn't allowed to, or that people are losing their jobs. And a lot of them are in circumstances which just makes no sense at all. Because you ask who or what are they actually protecting by dismissing these people? 
And yeah, I've written to universities, technical and further education institutions, uh, private enterprise, where people are being sacked because they're not vaccinated. And uh, yeah, I think we need to look after each other in a manner that says, look, uh, we need to look after each other and not have a two-tier system. Mm. So it seems to me, uh, Eric, that your consistency comes through on that point, which is that uh, you're somebody who uh, believes in these cardinal uh, principles of freedom, uh, and, and that has carried over into the COVID situation, the vaccine situation. What I've seen over and over again is people who believe in all of those things, but because of fears or, or, or whatever, in the moment they've almost panicked and thrown all the rule book out the window <laughs> and done away with the principles uh, and just forgotten what they believe and forgotten uh, that the, these in, inviolable uh, cardinal rules that we abide by, you know, and, and break to our peril. Um, and it seems to me even that, you know, we've got a, a in the federal government, it's a liberal government that believes in liberal freedoms, you know, free markets and also liberal, uh, uh, liberal understanding of freedoms and rights. It seems to me that maybe the government did that as well. Um, what do you think is, I mean, you're one of the few, there's, there's a few that have stood up and said, hey, we're all getting a little bit out of control here. Um, but it seems that within the engine room of the decision-making of the government at the moment, that sense is not there. What do you think is behind their reluctance to call out um, so much of the overreach. I'm thinking of states like Western Australia, Victoria, at least, you know. Um, what's behind that? There is no doubt there has been substantial overreach by government and fairly authoritarian language used as well. So, yeah, um, I heard leaders of all persuasions say, we will be locked down for as long as necessary. If I would have been a leader, I would have said, we will be locked down for as short as possible. Exactly the same outcome, but indicative of a completely different mindset, that we're going to close our international borders to keep this um, uh, virus out until we can adjust and uh, see how we handle the situation. But, you know, to say sort of manically leadership and all the rest, and overwhelmingly, The Australian people, I think, liked that at first, which concerned me that it was strong, dynamic leadership and it was all good, but our freedoms were at stake there as well and we could have achieved the same outcome with completely different language and different messaging. I think a lot of our political leaders were concerned that if they did not follow the advice of the so-called experts to the letter of the law, and something went a bit skew with, it would all be laid at the feet of that political leader because they had not followed the so-called expert advice. But uh, going around uh, Australia, in Tasmania, we closed the racing industry for a while. No other state did. In Victoria, they closed golf courses for a while. No other state did. In the Northern Territory, they never closed a school during COVID, yet around the rest of Australia they did. You've got to ask the question, are all these medical experts right? And of course now we have around the world countries just throwing out 
vaccine mandates, uh, mask wearing, etc. They're saying, look, this is uh, now back to normal, and we get rid of all the you know QR codes of uh, checking in and all the rest. And yet, in uh, Australia, we still seem to be pursuing some of those uh, policies, including, might I add, if you're unvaccinated, you're not allowed to leave the country unless you've got some huge explanation. Um, and I'm sorry, yeah, Australians have a right to leave their country and return to it, vaccinated or not. And I can't see the scientific basis at all, given what all the other countries are doing. And look, in all of this discussion as well, might I add, Martin, that there are those that want to believe in conspiracy theories as to why government have done it. There are those that want to debunk uh, the scientific evidence of the so-called experts. And I say to people, I don't care what floats your boat in this discussion. You have a right as an individual to determine whether or not you're going to be vaccinated. Be it a conspiracy theory that floats your boat or you passionately believe it's true or you passionately believe that the science is not on the side of vaccination, it is up to you to make that decision. And the Australian Immunisation Handbook used to tell us right up until the point of COVID that only legal valid consent, uh, it is only with legal valid consent that an yep. immunisation or vaccine should be administered. And that means no undue influence, no manipulation and no coercion. Well, I'm sorry, being told you will lose your job is, I think in anybody's language, undue influence, if not outright coercion. So those principles that had been written in for decades and people understood them as people's right to determine whether or not they'd be vaccinated or immunised, all of a sudden got thrown out the door. And I sort of thought to myself, excuse me, these are time-honoured values. We can't just discard them lightly. Uh, what is going? What precedent do we set ourselves in, in doing this? So uh, I think there has been, overall, a lack of strong leadership where there's only been advice taken from one quarter and not a totality of advice to get a well-rounded policy position. And the example I use, Martin, is it's a bit like the road toll. If the only source of, it, of my advice as a political leader was the road toll, well, our speed limits would be, what, 40 kilometres an hour? Because that way I could report no more road toll. I've got rid of the road toll. But our logistics task of getting goods to and from uh, people and people getting to and from work, visiting, tourism, etc., it would stifle our economy. So we've made a decision to set a speed limit of about 100 or 110. And that, unfortunately assumes that there will be the odd road toll, but we have to balance these things. We can't just be focused on the road toll, because if we did, chances are we wouldn't even have cars at all. And same with COVID. It was COVID zero that drove us, rather than how do we manage it? 
and some of the heartbreaking stories that have come to my office of a husband not being allowed in to hold the hand of his dying wife in an aged care facility because they were in lockdown, because they were scared of COVID, was just way over the top, completely disproportionate, and uh, that the mental scarring that will be left with many people for a long, long time because of this overreaction is going to cause, oh, will we'll have a legacy all of its own, along with, might I add, the economic damage, which our children and grandchildren will be paying off for the rest of their lives. So very frustrated by some of the lack of well-rounded, proportionate leadership in this COVID situation. Yeah, I resonate completely with the fact that I've spoken to so many people who have been harmed or hurt or, you know, otherwise um, had their lives turned upside down by the overzealous regulations. Um, I have a theory, Eric, I mean, Australia is starting to get left behind uh, the rest of the world in terms of coming out of the crisis. You know, there are many European countries now in the UK that have dropped everything, including international travel rules and all sorts. Um, but so long as we've got a state like Western Australia, uh, continue, I don't even think they've taken their masks off yet over in Western Australia. Uh, so long as we've got that going on, it seems to me the country won't go forward because there's been this sort of let's all move together kind of attitude, which means that the most authoritarian state government kind of gets to set the tune because everyone's waiting for them to get over themselves. <laughs> I do think that that's what's going on at the moment. Western Australia has been uh, a laggard in this regard, and I was surprised at the huge popularity that the West Australian Premier gained for a short period of time because people believed the delusion that he was keeping them safe. And... COVID is going to visit each and every one of us sometime, according to the scientific evidence, and how it interacts with us uh, will be determined according yeah. to a whole range of factors. But what our duty and care was as leadership, surely, was to get ourselves ready for the onslaught of COVID, but we could not live in a bubble forever get ourselves ready, and that is why at the very beginning, remember, we just needed to have these restrictions to flatten the curve, flatten the curve, just for a little while, Martin, that's what we were told, and we need a personal protective <laughs> get our hospitals ready and get enough ventilators, and I think we bought thousands of them, and I think we'd be lucky to have used about a 100 of them around Australia, so it's, um, but look, all that, we didn't know what we were dealing with. And so at the beginning, I can understand the reaction. But it then limped on for month after month and then into years. And that is what concerns me, that there wasn't a proportionality of public policy and certain medical people with a certain world view as well, um, dictated policy and uh, the leadership of the country, be it Liberal, Labor, state or federal, were not willing to really come to grips with some of the other issues at stake. So uh, disappointing, but that said, I think Australia can be relatively thankful for the way we have come through COVID in relation to uh, our economy, 
and uh, people's health and uh, the fatality factor has been relatively small in comparison to other countries. Well, we could probably talk about COVID for the rest of the day, Eric, which is not what I want to do. Let's, uh, <laughs> I want to pick up a couple of other areas which are important outside of COVID. You know, I do worry sometimes that people have allowed the COVID thing to make them forget about so much of the other things that are actually going to be important long term. And there are more. And you're a quotable guy. So I've got another quote here, which um, I want to drill into. This is from your maiden speech as well. This is about family. Uh, you said this, you said, the family is the fundamental and essential unit of our society. Strong families build strong nations. Strong families provide shelter and nurture for all their members from the rigors of day-to-day -day life. The family is a haven in which to seek solace. If we let down our families, we let down our nation. I join with King George V, who was noted, who was quoted by Damien Ed Lyons as having said, the foundation of a nation's greatness is in the homes of its people. Unfortunately, the rate of marriage failures, youth suicides and delinquency and a lot of other social ills can be traced back to the very real pressures being placed on the family unit. And I totally agree. I think so much of what goes on in social policy advocacy actually is solved in the family. Uh, there's so much of that. But I have a theory, um, Eric, I wouldn't mind getting your thoughts. Uh, there are those like yourself who I know say that the social fabric is the most important thing, you know, supported by the sorts of policies that conservatives are routinely criticised for, you know, the preservation of marriage, the nuclear family, gender identities, pro-life, all this kind of stuff um, at the beginning and end of life. You know, it says family and virtue is the foundation stone uh, really of a good society. That's that's at the, the top of the pyramid. It's the pinnacle. I encounter a lot of others, including um, people uh, right of centre, who would call themselves right of centre, where there's a different view, maybe a slightly more libertarian view, uh, where they say, no, actually, the highest value is, is the economy. It's the dollar. Uh, the foundation stone of a good government is a government that makes the economy roar and go faster, faster, faster. Uh, which, of course, means that they may even start to erode some of that family unit by trying to get everyone into work and all the rest of it and just, just firing up the dollars. Um, and that's the highest value. What's your thought? I, I, I find that division in the Liberal Party, actually. What are your thought on that, thoughts on that distinction? I don't believe that it's a valid distinction. And you can do both. And you need to do both, should do both. Because a good, healthy economy is what provides people with employment. And what is the best sort of social good um, out of employment is that people that are employed have the benefit of, in general terms, a better mental health, better physical health, better self-esteem, better social interaction. And that applies also to everybody in a household of somebody that's employed. And therefore, having a good humming economy which allows for employment is not only good economically, but it is a huge social good. And of course, if I'm employed, I'm paying taxes. I'm not drawing down on welfare. All of a sudden, a bit more money in government coffers, as a result of which we can have a better health system, better education system, uh, better environmental care. And so matters economic are very, very important, but to say that it's all about the holy, in inverted commas, dollar, as opposed to uh, values and virtues, that would be wrong. And that is where I think Robert Menzies yet again got it right, where he did not want just unbridled capitalism 
and let it rip. And if you right. can rip somebody off, good luck to you. You know, it's dog eat dog in this world. That's not the view of the economy that people who um, subscribe to the Menzies view of the world would uh, say ought to be happening. We do need some regulation and restriction. The question with all these things is how much, but values ultimately underpin the important issues of our society, and it's those values that in fact um, are the foundation for a good humming economy. And I remember uh, when I was leader of the government and the Senate used to do boardroom dinners a fair bit, and a number of top Australian business people would say to me, oh, Eric, leave the culture wars alone, leave the culture wars alone. Um, you know, it's just about the economy. Yeah. And I would say to them, you do realise the foundations of our economy. You know, who set up the banking system, who, uh, and the people that developed our economy. It's based on some very fundamental values and principles that a worker is entitled to a fair day's wage for a fair day's work, that there is that interrelationship um, that you should work as hard as you possibly can, that there is reward for effort. Um, where do these principles come from? Um, yeah, what, what, what are the values that underpin the free market economy? And it's only when they stop and think about it that they say, oh, we can now see what you're saying. But the fact that Australia's top business people were not immediately of the view that there has to be some important underlying foundation values and principles uh, underpinning the economy is a matter that was of concern to me. And now a lot of these business people are into the woke. They all of a sudden realise that there are values, but now it's all about matters woke rather than the fundamental values and principles on which their economy, on which their business was in fact founded. It is very well said and perhaps better articulated than my question in your answer. So um, let me point out one thing. You've got a Tasmanian Senate colleague, uh, Claire Chandler, uh, and she's been championing a bill for a little while now uh, to protect women's sports. Uh, and this is an issue that's really come into the forefront uh, with the Leah Thomas debacle over in America. There was this biological male swimmer uh, who won uh, the national championships. I think it was the 500-yard freestyle event they have over there. Um, and that created a big furor about the fact, well, if you've got people that are trans women, not biological women, you've, you're going to end women's sport pretty quickly because there's such a difference between men and women in this regard. Um, what are your thoughts on Senator Claire Chandler's bill to preserve the integrity of women's sports? Claire Chandler's bill deserves support. Uh, as I move around the community, I think it would have, what, 97 plus percent support, overwhelming support. People understand that there is a difference between the biological male and the biological female. It has been thus from the beginning. It will continue to be so, irrespective of how people want to deconstruct the very basic, the very basics of nature. Um, so Claire Chandler, very brave, good honour for saying it, and it's one of these bizarre things in today's world 
and that is why I'm so thankful that Senator Clay Chandler has led the fight on this, because a 30-year-old young female is able to say these things, but if I were to have led the charge as a 60-year-old male, twice the age, you can imagine the public, not the public reaction, because the public reaction remains the same, but the media reaction and the way yeah, that... Media reaction. Yeah, 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 that one is portrayed. So we no longer examine that which is actually said, that which is actually promoted, that which is actually advocated. It is who said it, or the colour of their skin, or their sex, or their age. Yet we have to get back to listen to what is actually being said in this concept of identity politics is just so dangerous, so corrosive. And you know, it was Martin Luther King himself who said, you know, it's not the colour of my children's skin. It needs to be the content of their character which is judged. And so my view has always been, I don't care who says what, I analyse what is said. And I'm not going to deconstruct what they've said because they happen to be male or female, gay or straight, black or white. They are irrelevant considerations as to the truth or otherwise of that which they are seeking to espouse. Claire Chandler, big tick, full support. She's doing the nation a great service. And I just wish the Australian Institute of Sports and other organisations followed the lead of Senator Chandler, they would have the overwhelming support of the Australian population. Yeah, truth is truth, no matter who says it, um, which applies to my next point, which is uh, pro-life, which is one that, uh, you know, the naysayers will always discount the view of a man. But hey, if it's true, it's true. And uh, I must say, one of the standouts from your 28 years in politics is that I think you've got a, an absolutely consistent pro-life record, which has not always been easy. Um, it's been a very controversial issue for a long time. Uh, I looked at some motions that went through the Senate over recent years, and uh, you've opposed Medicare funding for late-term abortions, uh, the introduction of exclusion zones around abortion clinics, um, liberalising the availability of the abortion drug, RU486. Uh, you voted against granting territory rights to legalise euthanasia, um, which is uh, the other end of the pro-life spectrum at the end of life. Uh, and, and more besides, why then do you take uh, a, a, a different position? I mean, I know a, a conservative view of, that's put forward, well, a so-called conservative view that's often put forward, is that abortion should be safe, legal and rare. Uh, I take it you don't agree with that. Uh, I don't agree with a view that abortion uh, should be safe, legal and rare because you've got to start with a proposition what, it, what is an abortion. It is the taking of a human life. And so uh, can you safely take a human life in relation to the other person? Yes, but the end of the procedure is a dead human being. So please don't tell me that it's safe. You can then say, is it legal? Well, you can make any law that says that um, you know, the uh, what, killing of unwanted people is legal or that you know, somebody of a particular 
physical characteristic is allowed to be killed, well, that might make it legal, does not mean it's right. And then that it should be rare, I sort of agree with that, but it shouldn't occur at all unless, unless it is needed for the preservation of another human life. And so that's the only part of those three, that three-word slogan, safe, right. uh, legal and rare, that I can understand that in some circumstances the taking of one life in the preservation of another life can be justified. A difficult decision though it is, it is something that uh, can, I think, be reasonably, logically and fairly made out. Um, yeah, look, one more issue from me, Eric, um, and uh, I, I, look, I totally agree with you, even though I frame that question in a way like I might not agree with you. Of course I do. <laughs> but uh, one more issue I want to I nail before, before closing out, and that is something I noticed again from your maiden speech, which was very prescient, I think, given where things are at now. You made a comment about internationalism in our domestic lawmaking. Uh, you said uh, you support a federalist system of government, the rights of citizens of each state to largely determine their own social and local policies. And you said, I'm concerned at the trend to internationalism in our domestic lawmaking. Let us learn from our fellow world citizens. Let us discuss and debate their ideas, but we should never forego our national sovereignty. Uh, I think a lot of people are sort of um, very aware of this at the moment. Sometimes it can trend into the conspiratorial, but there's something very real here which is, you know, you've got these groups like the World Economic Forum and when people hear the way they talk, when they have their Great Reset meeting and they say you'll own nothing and be happy and everyone goes, what on earth is this? Uh, and when they look at some of the things coming out of bodies like the UN, um, and it's just a different world. And there's a lot of people there that have a very statist view of the world, you know, highly socialist, highly communistic kind of approach to life. I want to ask a question, you know, I think people are, are really concerned about this and perhaps... Um, maybe too concerned, thinking that the government is some kind of puppet. Now, I don't think we're going to go there. However, how much of a concern is this trend, internationalism in domestic lawmaking? It's uh, very concerning from my perspective because, once again, a lot of lawmakers will not discuss the issue at stake. They'll just say every other country's doing it or the United Nations has recommended or whatever the case may be, with a pandemic of oh, the World Health Organization. Yeah, at first they said it wasn't communicable between humans. Uh, and so, and we then found out that Beijing was uh, uh, directing some of the commentary out of the World Health Organization. So keeping our domestic politics domestic is important because if you let go of it, you'll never be able to get control. And I think that was one of the fundamentals of the people of the United Kingdom voting for Brexit. They wanted to get yeah. out of the European Union because the English Parliament, you know, the mother of all parliaments, Westminster, could pass legislation only to have an organisation in Brussels saying, no, Westminster Parliament, you cannot legislate for this even if it's for the good of the people of the United Kingdom, democratically determined by them, we will not allow you to do whatever you want to do. Well, that is when people give up on democracy. That is when people feel alienated, they feel powerless. And that is why keeping power 
with people locally for them to be able to determine, um, I think is the best way forward. Internationalism, as a result, has very real worries for me, especially in circumstances where the freedom-loving countries of the world are actually in a minority. And therefore, if you are a freedom-loving person in a freedom-loving country, why would you seek to outsource social policy to a group of people that are not committed to freedom and to democracy and to the rule of law? And so, yeah, we have, uh, as we speak, the Human Rights uh, Committee of the United Nations having such great um, human rights exponents as the dictatorship in China. Yeah, really? How does that work? One million of their people in concentration camps, but they sit on the Human Rights Committee? How does that work? And so why should we in Australia that have freedoms unparalleled subject ourselves to the criticisms of the UN Human Rights Committee? And they find all sorts of faults with us, might I add. But interestingly enough, you'll find they'll never find fault with North Korea or Cuba or yeah. some of the other calcitrant countries in the world. And so, yeah, coming back to the point, protect your rights locally and nationally and make sure that we do not sell ourselves out to the dictates of people who are on the world stage courtesy of tin pot dictatorships and corrupt regimes trying to tell us in Australia how to do our business as a body politic. It's interesting. You made a good point there about Brexit. You know, um, the people in the UK didn't want the European Union. Uh, it was other people that wanted the European Union. Uh, and we, you made the same sort of connection, for example, with the women's sport issue, which is that on the ground, the ordinary person thinks one way. Uh, but when you get into the institutions and the halls of power, everyone's, you know, we've seen this week all of these departmental heads uh, too afraid to define a woman, for example. Uh, <laughs> you know, Senator Alex Antic has been going around saying, what is a woman? <laughs> to departments that should have an answer and they won't, they either can't or won't answer the question. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, the average man looks on and thinks, this is madness, you know. There is a disconnect on some of these, um, some of these issues how do you keep your feet on the ground um, and not lose touch, I suppose, with what the ordinary person is thinking about this stuff? A very important question, and I'm often a bit disillusioned with the, what, uh, the cohort in Canberra, that there seems to be a bubble and they chatter to each other and then that becomes the collective wisdom up there. Yet, as soon as you come back to the ground level, you realise that there's this complete disconnect between that which the elites are talking about and that which is the aspiration of the average person. So it then takes, if I might say, a degree of courage, backbone and a strong foundational belief system to stand up against that chattering class and the um, the zeitgeist that seems to be overtaking things in Canberra. So Senator Claire Chandler, as I said before, a big tick. But it then also comes back to why are people in Parliament, in public life, 
And look, I took a pay cut to get into politics. I would like to think that if I ever get out of politics, I would be able to earn just as good an income, if not better. And therefore, my motivation has never been that I need to keep this job simply for the income or for the status that I want to visit upon myself. I'm in it to make a difference, to either promote good things, um, defend against bad things, and put Australia on a track and our society on a track that will see the greatest benefit for my fellow Australians. So if you're up there with a sense of service, it doesn't matter if a department or a journalist writes nasty things about you because you're whatever, because you don't have a particular view on transsexualism or whatever else the issue might be. Um, you just need strength and a commitment, and I hope throughout my parliamentary life I have been and will continue to show that I'm not interested in what the latest trendy fad is. I'm more interested in what is of benefit to the community at large. And, you know, uh, deconstructing family, deconstructing uh, male, female, the binary system, etc., serves no useful purpose. And I was in one committee where Senator Antic asked the question, and the bureaucrats, even the top medical fellow, had to say, I'll take it on notice. But here we have a medical system allegedly devoted to the to, in certain areas to the service of women. We have a special women's program. We have a special... Well, what's your definition of a woman? Who are you seeking to serve? They can't tell you. Well, you know, if you've got a youth program, you know, usually in church or wherever it is, they say cut-off point is 16 years of age. And they will tell you that's the cut-off point. Male... Yeah, we have a special women's program, but we can't tell you what a woman is, so we can't really tell you who's going to be the beneficiary of the program. How does that work? How can they sit there in their offices in the glorified atmosphere of Canberra and actually think that they are seriously implementing good policy? All they're trying to do is protect themselves from criticism from the woke, and therefore they try to crab walk away from a definition instead of saying, look, it is important for a whole range of reasons and for the vast bulk of the community to have that distinction between male and female and for those who, for whatever reason, don't fit into that neat binary situation. And there are some people uh, who uh, mentally, psychologically or indeed physically don't fit into that neat category we as a community have to be sensitive and supportive of those people and not alienate them. But that doesn't mean we have to alienate the other, let's say, 99% of the population that do feel comfortable with a binary system. And that is where uh, Canberra and a lot of the public commentary these days have lost track of how to run a good functioning united society which ultimately is for the good of all the people of Australia. That's what I seek to do uh, in my role and uh, Martin, yeah, good question. 
I think we've come almost full circle, uh, Senator, because um, we started with the attitude of service. And you mentioned there that one of the protectors uh, in that particular field of making sure that what you're doing is not disconnected from the people uh, is an attitude of service. So uh, that's come full circle. And I just want to make a, a, a note as we close, uh, which is that uh, with ACL, what we're doing at the moment is, as I said, we're trying to get people to consider uh, people not parties when it comes to this election season, uh, and to compare the record of people, uh, particularly on the issues that we're concerned about, um, and, and, and make sure that they are voting for the good guys. Um, and so that's what this interview's been about. It's been about going through the sorts of things uh, that concern us, that concern our supporters, so they can get a view of your record. Uh, and if people decided off the back of that that they were keen to have you in their vote at the top of their preferences or near the top of their preferences, they can do one or two things. Uh, if they're a Tasmanian, because you're uh, a senator for the state of Tasmania, um, and so all Tasmanians will have your name on their Senate ballot, which is the big white one. Uh, and there's two ways. There's an above-the-line vote or, or a below-the-line vote. There's a big black horizontal line across the page. And above the line, you've got the names of all the political parties, and you can number the political parties. Uh, you're a member of the Liberal Party. Um, or if you want to follow through on what ACL is recommending to do, which is a below-the-line vote, you don't put the numbers above the line, you put them below the line next to the names of the individual candidates rather than the names of the parties. Uh, and Eric, they will find the name Eric Abetz on their Tasmanian Senate paper. It will be third down the column on the Liberal Party column, and they can put their number next to you uh, if that's what they would like to do. So that is uh, how people can act in light of this if they like what they heard. But um, otherwise, I'm very grateful that you came on and gave us so much of your time uh, when you're so busy. Uh, and I want to say thanks for your 28-plus years in the Senate. Here's to another six. We'll find out in roughly a month, Eric. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.